Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss with the Center for Western Priorities in a very snowy and cold Denver, Colorado today. And I'm Kate Gretzinger, recording today from sunny Austin, Texas. Um, Today on the podcast, we've got the details on some shenanigans going on in Utah. And by shenanigans, I mean a plan to mine hundreds of thousands of barrels of waxy crude oil in Utah's Uinta Basin, using hundreds of thousands of gallons of Colorado River water, the rights to which were likely obtained illegally. It's a pretty crazy story, which we'll get back to in a little bit. But first, we're going to do the news. Well, the big news of the day, of course, is that House Republicans have, as of 11 a.m. Mountain Time on Thursday, when we're recording this, failed for a seventh time to pick a Speaker of the House, meaning they can't pass rules, fill committees, do constituent services, or even swear in newly elected members. Uh, All in all, that is uh, not bad news for the environment, since it means uh, House Republicans will likely struggle to do anything significant this session, uh, which includes helping oil and gas companies or passing significant anti-climate legislation, it is also almost impossible to imagine that anything makes it out of the House could also pass the Senate, which is still controlled by Democrats. Still, there are some concerning bills that have been floated by the GOP that we could see in the first couple of weeks, if or when they ever get a speaker in committees. Uh, a couple in particular that would seek to limit releases of oil from America's National Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is, of course, something President Biden has done several times to try to lower gas prices. One bill would bar the sale of oil from the reserve to entities controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. Okay, fine, I don't know that there was much of that going on to begin with. But the other bill would prohibit the release of oil from the reserve until the energy secretary comes up with a plan to increase oil and gas leasing on federal lands. That bill, and the way it's being framed insinuates that President Biden's drilling and leasing policies on national public lands are somehow responsible or contributing to high gas prices. That is obviously nonsense for reasons we have gone over on this podcast a whole lot over the last year. But what's amazing about this bill is that it would not, in fact, do anything to require or even encourage oil and gas companies to use the tens of thousands of leases they already have to say nothing of the 9,000 approved drilling permits. So it wouldn't actually do anything to increase oil and gas production. All it does is produce more leasing down the road, and all more leasing does is lock up public lands, preventing them from being used for other purposes, including conservation or recreation, all just padding the books of oil and gas CEOs for decades to come. In other news, the situation in the Colorado River Basin is getting serious. Federal officials may finally put the brakes on unrestrained development and chronic overuse of water, starting with forcing Arizona to use 21% less water from the Colorado River this year. That has Arizona developers turning to the state's already overtaxed groundwater resources to provide water for new housing projects. Meanwhile, much of that groundwater is already being used by private companies, including Saudi Arabia's largest dairy producer, to grow alfalfa that feeds dairy cows 8,000 miles away. In response to all of this, state officials are considering a proposal to build a plant to desalinate ocean water in Mexico and pump it 200 miles across the border, which would actually go through Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument. 
that's just a terrible idea for a number of obvious reasons that we will not bore you with. So let's travel north up the Colorado River to the Uinta Basin, where an Estonian oil company is making plans to gobble up more Colorado River water. Our guest today is a ski bum turned environmental lawyer who is dedicated to protecting the Colorado Plateau. He has worked in the nonprofit and private sector, as well as serving as assistant attorney general for the state of Colorado. Now he is a staff attorney at the Grand Canyon Trust. Michael Toll, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So we asked you here because there are some shenanigans happening in Utah right now. I mean, I guess there are always some shenanigans happening in Utah, but especially regarding oil and gas. Uh, so the, there are two big things that I want to understand, and then we can talk about how they are or aren't connected. There is this proposed oil train that would run from Utah through Colorado. We will get to that. But first, tell us what is going on with this Estonian state-owned oil company that wants to mine not drill, mine for oil in the Uint Basin. Sure. So the, the company's name is uh, Enifit, and they're Estonian. Um, it's owned by the, the nation of Estonian. Um, and this uh, uh, company is one of the biggest um, miners and processors in the world of oil shale, uh, which is different than than conventional oil, and it's different than shale oil, Um uh, shale oil is uh, what is uh, uh, fracking is usually used to extract uh, shale oil, which which I'm sure all all of our listeners know about. Um, it uses hydraulic fracturing techniques to to fracture tight shale formations to release conventional oil and then drill it and pump it to the to the surface. Oil shale is a rock. It's a sedimentary rock that contains a hydrocarbon called kerogen. Um, at a very basic level, the difference between oil, gas, coal, tar sands, and kerogen uh, is just a difference in the length of the hydrocarbons. So the deeper that they're buried, the more intense the pressure and heat, which breaks down long hydrocarbons into short hydrocarbons. Um, oil is near the bottom, so it has short hydrocarbons, and kerogen is near the top, um, so it wasn't exposed to enough pressure and heat to turn it into conventional oil. Um, but over the past more than a century or so, uh, companies have figured out how to kind of finish nature's unfinished work um, so that they uh, will oftentimes strip mine uh, huge areas of land to to mine for the oil shale rock, and then you heat it up in a process called retorting. Um, you heat it up to extremely high temperatures, north of about 800 degrees, which is basically mimicking, mimicking what would happen if that oil shale was buried more deeply to convert the oil shale into what's called synthetic crude oil. So uh, in Utah, uh, as well as parts of Colorado and Wyoming, there is a massive amount of oil shale rock that's just waiting to be turned into oil. Um, that formation is called the Green River Oil Shale Formation or the Green River Formation. Um, it is estimated uh, by, by various uh, entities to have about the same amount of recoverable oil as the entire world's 
proven oil reserves. So it's an absolutely massive, untapped, fairly untapped um, source of oil. But again, you have to mine for the rock itself and then go through this process called retorting and then often a subsequent process called upgrading to turn it into a petroleum feedstock that can then be sent to refineries and turned into usually kind of end-use transportation fuel. So the Green River Formation, because it has uh, such a vast quantity of oil shale, is what attracted this Estonian company, Enefit, which, as I said, is one of the world leaders in oil shale mining and processing, to that area. Um, back in about 2012, Enefit uh, purchased um, about 30,000 acres of land in the Uinta Basin in northeast Utah, um, from from uh, a previous company, as well as some associated water rights and and all of um, uh, federal the, the federal leases that go along with those those land holdings. So altogether, is about thirty thousand acres of mineral holdings in the Uinta Basin, and uh, Enefit's plans call for strip mining up to about nine thousand acres of land in that area, which is near the confluence of the Green River and the White River. Um, and they plan to build about a 320-acre industrial oil shale processing plant. The name of that facility is called the South Project, and it would dig up the the the, the project in in total would dig up about 28 million tons of raw oil shale rock, and then it would churn out through the processing plant about 18 million barrels of refinery ready ready crude oil every year for more than three decades. So that that amount would nearly double the Uinta Basin's current oil production from every oil producer combined. And the Uinta Basin is one of the more productive uh, uh, oil producing regions in the country, certainly in, in the state of Utah. Um, now, oil shale uh, has um, uh, oil, shale, oil shale mining and processing has tremendous environmental and public health impacts. Uh, it requires a constant input of electricity and natural gas, as well as a means to move the process oil to market. Um, because of the huge amount of energy that's required to mine and process and transport oil shale um, and the resulting crude oil, the total well-to-wheel carbon dioxide emissions, so that's you know from digging the kind of carrageen-rich rock from the ground to heating it, transporting it, and refining it, all the way through the point when it's burned in the engine of your car is somewhere about 75% higher than the emissions from conventional oil. Um, and then on top of that, mining and processing generate a huge amount of toxic waste rock that can pollute groundwater and nearby, nearby surface waters. And in that region, the upper Colorado River Basin, it's home to um, four endangered fish species. Um, the, the mining and processing will also generate a huge amount of uh, hazardous air pollutants, including ozone precursors. And uh, the Uinta Basin's ozone levels are already among the worst in the nation, during, particularly during stretches of wintertime, mostly due to oil and gas development. So nearly doubling the basin's oil production would dramatically increase the region's emissions of ozone precursors and, and other air pollutants. So you know, that, that's just a small slice of it. It would also generate hundreds of millions of tons of waste rock and overburden that could that could just have really catastrophic um, public health and environmental impacts. So it's, it's really hard to overstate the impacts from this project. Um, it, it really is not hyperbolic to say that this would be one of, if not the most um, harmful industrial projects in the history of industrial development on the Colorado Plateau. 
So that, that's a lot to digest. I'll, let me pause there for a minute. I, I haven't even gotten to water, which of course is the segue <laughs> to this, this uh, administrative protest that we filed with the Division of Water Rights. So let me, let me just pause there, see if you have any follow-up questions, and then I'll launch into the water side of all of this. All right. So yes, my next question was going to be water, but real quick, before we get there, all of this, in addition to being just awful environmentally and incredibly inefficient, strikes me as not terribly cost-effective compared to drill a hole in the ground. I mean, how in the world does this even pencil out if you are an Estonian state-owned oil company competing with the Permian Basin or Saudi oil that just comes out of the ground with or without a little help from fracking? How does the the economics even work on this? So I, I think the answer to that is is uh, twofold. One I think it very largely depends on the the price of oil per barrel at the moment. Um, and uh, I don't know what their break even point is. And I'm sure that is a closely guarded um, kind of proprietary number. Um, but I'm I am quite confident that it has to be a certain price per barrel in order to make this economical. But in addition to that, because it is state owned, I am assuming, but I am not certain that the economics are somewhat uh, different than it would be perhaps for a publicly traded corporation that has to, you know, show profit for the shareholders. Um, I, I don't know that that's the case, but I assume that both of those factors are at play to determine when the, uh, the, the uh, when Enifit would find it economical to move forward with, with the mining and, and processing of oil shale at, at the cell project. So we've read about this project and re- I read that it is going to be incredibly water intensive. Where are they getting this water? Yeah. So uh, amongst all of the kind of scary sounding uh, public health and environmental impacts that I mentioned before, one that I did not mention, of course, is water consumption. Um, mining and processing oil shale is an extremely thirsty endeavor. Uh, up to about four barrels of water are needed for each barrel of crude oil that is produced from oil shale. So to meet that demand, uh, the South Project plans to withdraw from the Green River up to about 11,000 acre feet of water per year. So that's nearly 10 million gallons of water every day or 3.5 billion gallons per year and more than 100 billion gallons over the life of the project. Um, and so, you know, just for some perspective, that's about as much water as all existing municipal and industrial water users in the Uinta Basin combined. So it's a truly massive amount of water. Um, now, the the way that Enifit is going to be getting this water is through a, a single water right for 15 cubic feet per second, which is a, roughly equates to 11,000 acre feet per year. So up until um, a few years ago, Enifit was the owner of a single 15 cubic feet per second water right from the Green River with a priority date uh, of 1965. So that means that um, Enifit's predecessors uh, initially filed an application with the Division of Water Rights seeking to appropriate, so seeking to divert 15 cubic feet per second from the Green River back in 1965. And under Utah law, you have 50 years to put that water to what's called beneficial use or else you lose your place in line. And in Western water, your place in line under the prior appropriation system is everything. Seniority is everything. Exactly. So first in time, first in right. Um, so 
when Enefit was on the verge of uh, forfeiting this water right because it had never actually put the water to beneficial use. So it had never used the water for the mining and processing of oil shale. What it did was transfer this water right to Deseret Power, which is the owner of the Bonanza coal-fired power plant up in the Uinta Basin. Now, under Utah law, there is an exception to this 50-year deadline that allows wholesale electrical cooperatives and public water suppliers, but for our purposes, um, the, the, the relevant um, uh, entity is wholesale electrical cooperatives. It allows those entities to extend their water right beyond that 50-year deadline if they need the water to meet the public's future power demand. So this is an exception that was passed by the Utah legislature that is intended to benefit the public, right? So, you know, oftentimes time horizons for building power plants are so long that if if a water right were to expire in 50 years, then uh, an electrical cooperative could lose their water before they actually have the good faith chance to use it. So it actually does make some sense. But through the course of uh, the federal court litigation, uh, that we filed, that the Grand Canyon Trust and, and our partners filed uh, back in 2018, we learned that Enefit, before it transferred this water right to Deseret Power, signed a contract with Deseret Power that entitles Enefit to the exclusive use of the full amount of this water right for the next 30 plus years. So after they executed that contract, then Deseret Power went into the Utah Division of Water Rights, sought the extension beyond the 50-year period, swearing that it needed this water to meet the public's future power demand. But in fact, before they swore to that, they had executed a contract that, that entitled Enefit to the exclusive use of all of that water for oil shale mining and processing. So it certainly seems that Deseret Power is helping Enefit to avoid the forfeiture of this water right. And but for uh, Deseret Power's application to extend this water right beyond 50 years, the water right would have been forfeited a few years ago, and then it would have been available to the public, to Utahns, to appropriate for other uses. Um, and we actually uh, found out through a, 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 an article in the publication Grist um, that was published a few weeks ago, uh, the reporter on that story um, interviewed the assistant uh, state engineer, so I, I believe the number two at, at the Division of Water Rights, uh, about this issue. And and um, Mr. Manning, uh, Jared Manning is his name, um, uh, said that if this water right were to be forfeited, there's a very good chance that the water would actually just stay in the river. So it would not that they uh, are not allowing appropriations of that size to come from the Green River at the moment. Um, so there there stands to be a real um, environmental benefit if this water were to be forfeited. Now that's that's of course you know the impact that that we're focused on, but at the same time we wanted to present this information to the Division of Water Rights showing this relationship in between Deseret Power and Enefit and what exactly is going on here. At the end of the day, um, I, I don't know if it's worth getting into the weeds on, on um, you know, the nuance of our legal claims that we're raising in the administrative protest that we filed with the Division of Water Rights to bring all this to the agency's attention. Um, but but it, it was basically to, to um, it was seeking to forfeit this water right uh, because 
Deseret power by virtue of having uh, granted to Enifit the exclusive right to use all of this water is not exercising uh, what's called diligence in trying to put the water to beneficial use. So it's a bit a bit weedy, but the bottom line is that we just brought this to the agency's attention and we're hoping that they act on it. So uh, listeners at home can't see Kate and I nodding along in agreement. It, it all seems like a really slam dunk situation. So what is the the legal landscape and or time frame here? You're, it sounds like waiting on the regulatory side first, and then if that doesn't succeed, m- moving into the courts? Well, so there, there's two separate actions going on here. Um, there was the federal court lawsuit um, that we filed in the, the District of Utah uh, that the trust and our partners filed in 2018. Um, that relates to the Bureau of Land Management's approval of several rights of way um, to benefit that the company needs in order to build the South Project oil shale mine and processing plant so that the the mine and processing plant would all be on private land, but it's on an island of private land surrounded by federal public lands. So in order to run the water pipeline, the gas pipeline, the produced oil pipeline, um, electric lines, roads, et cetera, they need to cross federal public lands so Enifit needed uh, rights of way from the agency. We sued uh, the Bureau of Land Management and the Fish and Wildlife Service because the analysis that those entities performed, um, uh, which was ostensibly supposed to analyze the impacts from the South project, um, uh, the, the environmental impact statement and the biological opinion that were issued failed to actually do so. So they they confined the analysis more or less to the impact from building and operating the rights of way themselves. So from building and, and operating the, the pipelines, but they failed to do an adequate analysis of the massive environmental and public health impacts from the, the project that would be enabled by these rights of way. So that, that lawsuit, like I said, was filed in 2018. That's been pending now for over two years um, in, in federal district court in Utah. We, we hope to have um, a ruling on that case soon. The water right protest that I was mentioning is a separate action, even though the, the, the facts for that protest um, were discovered during the course of the federal court litigation. Um, late last year, the Grand Canyon Trust filed an administrative protest with the Utah Division of Water Rights. So this is an administrative protest. Um, there were uh, the, the briefing on that protest wrapped up earlier this year, but the presiding officer overseeing that protest um, decided to have a hearing on just the question of whether the Grand Canyon Trust and our co-protestant have standing. Um, so whether basically we are... Um, uh, the proper parties to be filing this type of protest. Um, following that hearing where there was a round of supplemental briefing, so we filed a, uh, an initial brief and then Deseret Power filed their response. And just on Monday, we filed our reply for that supplemental briefing. So all of the, the principal merits briefing has been wrapped up for some time. There's been a hearing on the question of standing and the briefing uh, on the supplemental question of standing wrapped up earlier this week. And we are now waiting for a ruling from the presiding officer on the question of standing. If we prevail, um, then then the next step should be a full hearing on the merits of our protest. Um, and if we do not prevail, then uh, we have some decisions to make about what to do next. Um, one potential option is to seek judicial review of the state engineers, uh, of the presiding officer's decision.
Cool. Well, it, that's, it sounds like there are a couple of ways to stop this, which is good um, to hear. Before we move on, because we have, we want to talk about that train that Aaron mentioned earlier. Um, but before we move on to that, um, what is your read on this? Do you think you guys will stop it? I sure hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I um, am an optimist by nature, so okay, I will say I'll take yes. It. Um, and so, yeah, Aaron mentioned that you, the state of Utah is trying to build this train that would run from the Uinta Basin through Colorado, uh, ostensibly to move waxy crude, which apparently is sort of what comes out of the Uinta Basin. Is that at all connected to this project? How would they be moving their this this uh, mined crude out of the basin? Yeah, so Enifit is definitely not the the primary proponent of that train, but they have expressed support, written support for that train um, because that would be one potential avenue um, to transport the, the produced synthetic crude oil that's produced from the South project to various refineries around the country. Um, currently, their plan is to um, build a pipeline on those rights away that I was talking about um, to transport it to refineries in Salt Lake City and, and elsewhere. So the uh, 50,000 barrels of synthetic crude oil per day that are going to be produced are currently proposed to be shipped, uh, transported through a pipeline. Um, but I, I would think, I, I'm not certain about this, but if there is a, a train in place, um, if there's another pathway for them to transport that oil, that could only be good for them, right? Um, you know, potentially reduce costs, et cetera. And um, the South Project is just kind of the beginning phase of their uh, overall plans to develop their 30,000 acres of mineral holdings in the Uinta Basin. So again, the South Project would mine about 9,000 acres, but they have other private state and federal mineral holdings up there. So once they get the processing plant built, they could move on to other land holdings and then mine the oil shale deposits in those areas, process those at the uh, at the processing plant, and then um, uh, ship that processed oil to market either by pipeline or if there's a train in place, um, then then they, uh, you know, I'm sure would be interested in using that as well. So um, it, it definitely, you know, it is a project that the train that is. Um, the, the primary proponents of that project are the kind of traditional oil and gas developers in the Uinta Basin, but there are definitely other players that would be interested and are, are advocating for that. Um, among them, I believe, uh, tar sands producers as well. All of this is happening in fairly close proximity to Dinosaur National Monument. Um, if all this gets built, is there a potential that it impacts the visitor experience there? My understanding is that the answer to that question is no. Um, okay. It, okay. This is, if my geography is correct, um, um, southwest of Dinosaur National Monument. Um, and it, it is far enough off the main highway in that area that it, it's not something that you can, at least the South Project as a, as a standalone facility, it's not something 
um, that you would just uh, happen upon while driving along the highway to go visit Dinosaur National Monument. Um, and it's not something that you would see if you were floating down the Green River. Um, but it is something that you would see if you were canoeing down the White River, which is a very popular recreational activity. And, and you would see those uh, pipelines um, and, and electric lines um, and just the overall industrial development if you were floating down that corridor. Um, so I, I, I guess the the answer to your specific question, I don't believe it would impact the visitor experience to Dinosaur National Monument, um, but it, it would um, certainly stand to impact um, recreational uses in, in the broader Uinta Basin. All right. Well, um, Michael, thank you so much for sharing all of this for us and breaking it down for us. Um, it's a lot to digest. Is there anything else you think our listeners should know about this project before we um, call it a day? You know, I, I think um, the most important thing to know about it is just that it exists because most people don't know about it. Um, and and oil shale is kind of an obscure fossil fuel. Um, and it's, it's difficult to overstate just how harmful oil shale development is for the environment and for public health. Um, you know, in, in a time of, of climate crisis and a time of unprecedented drought, the idea that we would strip mine tens of thousands of acres of land to get this sedimentary rock and then heat it up to temperatures, you know, approaching the, the, the temperature of the surface of the sun to extract a fossil fuel, to send it to uh, a refinery to power, you know, my 2005 Honda CRV is just on its face absurd. But when you really dig into the details of just how harmful that that chain of events would be, it is is quite scary. And you know, if there are opportunities in the future to let your voice be known, whether it's to the Bureau of Land Management or the Fish and Wildlife Service or the Utah Division of Water Rights, um, that that I think would go a long way. Um, I think the more these agencies hear from the public, um, the more likely it is that, um, you know, hopefully they'll, they'll follow the law and, and do the right thing. All right. Well, I'm sure that you'll keep us informed if there are opportunities to weigh in, uh, public comment and whatnot. Thank you again, Michael Toll, staff attorney for the Grand Canyon Trust. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Our good news this week is that there's another new national monument proposal out in California. Go back to the end of last episode to hear about the proposed Range of Light National Monument. This one would be called Chukwala National Monument and would encompass nearly 700,000 acres just south of Joshua Tree National Park. This vast stretch of California desert provides habitat for threatened and endangered desert wildlife, including the desert tortoise, bighorn sheep, and the monument's namesake, a large desert lizard called a Chukwala. But advocates say the area to be included in the monument also provides important outdoor recreation opportunities for nearby communities in the eastern Coachella Valley. Also, the proposed monument's boundaries were specifically drawn to avoid the areas deemed suitable for renewable energy development under the Desert Renewable Energy Conservation Plan, a 22.5 million acre plan covering seven counties that identifies specific development areas for renewable energy, while also specifying areas that should be conserved for wildlife, recreation, and cultural values. That's great news, since we need both renewable energy and conservation to fight climate change, and we need conservation and renewable energy not to fight each other in the meantime. 
you know, I, I don't know that I would ever consider any lizard to be like snuggly or something you really want to hug. But if I if I was going to hug any lizard, it would be a Chuckwalla. They're <laughs> you know, kind of chonky, kind of cute. I like them. Good name for a monument. All right. Got to go look that. Got to go Google image search that right now. All right, that is it for today, folks. As always, if you have thoughts on this episode or ideas for future guests, email us, podcast at westernpriorities.org. And thank you again to Michael Toll and everyone at the Grand Canyon Trust for their work to protect our public lands. And thank you for listening to The Landscape. Landscape.